Good morning, everyone. How you guys doing? Good. You guys are sleepier than the 9 o'clock people. For shame. I'm Nate Wagner. I'm one of the pastors here, and it really is good to see you guys, um, and I'm so glad you're here. Um, if you're new or visiting, welcome. We're glad you're here as well. Um, and you've come right in the middle of a series that we're going through, um, the eighth chapter of Romans. And this chapter has been called the greatest chapter or one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. I don't know how you can say that, but I'll believe them. Um, anyways, it is really encouraging us, and it is telling us who we are in Christ. It's telling us what it looks like to live that out in a fallen and messy world. It's telling us what our future is going to look like, and it's telling us that our salvation is actually part of a much bigger story than just about us. And so it's going to be a great ride, um, and we're kind of just getting some momentum into it. And today, we are going to pick up with a topic of sanctification. And so if you've been around church, you might be familiar with that word. Um, it's actually, sanctification on one hand is really simple, and it's also very complex, but it's basically killing sin and living for God. So as we are united to Christ, part of our being in Christ is that in Christ we then put sin to death and we start living to God. We come alive to God all in Christ. And this didn't happen haphazardly. It's not just kind of like one outcome of what it means to be saved. It's actually central to God's will for us and for the world. And we know this because during Jesus' earthly ministry, he went to the Father right before he was crucified to pray. And hear what he prays for you. He was thinking about you right before he was crucified, and he went to the Father to pray this. And this is in John 17, verses 17 through 19. Sanctify them, Father, in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. And so this is at the very heart of what Jesus wants for us. So much so that he pleads with the Father to make that happen. And in Romans 8, we're going to be in verses 12 and 13, Paul describes God's answer to that prayer and what that looks like, which I think is just wonderful, that we actually get a picture of God the Father answering the prayer of his eternal son in real time. And that prayer includes us in our lives. And so as we open up Romans 8, verses 12 and 13, we're going to see that in Christ we kill sin because our lives depend on it. In Christ we kill sin because our lives depend on it. And so listen to Romans 8, verses 12 and 13, and then we'll unpack this. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if 
by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day and this time. God, every time we come before you, every time we gather around your word, it is you speaking through it to us, your people. And so today, Lord, this is the word that you have for us. You want us to hear you speaking and hear your greatest desire for us is that we would no longer live as a slave to sin, but we would live as your children. God, not only that, but you have given your very self to be with us, to dwell with us, to encourage us, to give us power and strength that we do not have on our own so that we can use it, Lord. And so, God, I, I just pray that we would receive that today, that you would convict us of areas where we've grown complacent, of areas where we don't believe that you have strength or power, and of areas where we have hardened ourselves or deceived ourselves into thinking that we don't need this. God, we thank you so much for the grace um, and mercy that is found in these words, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we come to any, any text in the Bible, we're already coming with kind of a framework to interpret that text. So how do we figure out what these words actually mean? And um, I was... I just thought this was, this was a beautiful way of understanding our own hearts as we try to understand what God means. What does Paul mean and God through Paul when he writes these words to us? Because we might be tempted to interpret them in one way or interpret them in another way and kind of miss the point. And so in order to help us understand that and to engage this text, um, I want to give you guys the, the framework of different types of stories. So there's different types of stories. This is very basic. There's happy stories, there's, there's sad stories, and then there's fairy stories. And so happy stories, comedies, involve a heroic figure. And usually the villains in these types of, of stories are not very um, impressive. They're kind of there just to be killed by the hero. And so there's not that much tension. There might be a little bit of, um, you know, it might start off in kind of an uncertain place, but you know the whole time where it's going. It's like, oh, this is inevitable. The good guy kills the bad guy. Everybody knows that's what's going to happen. So that's what happens. And so that's a way that we can approach this text. And when we're doing that, we become the hero. We insert ourselves into our own comedy where we star. And the power of sin is really only acknowledged insofar as we can obviously kill it. And so the Christian battle with sin is kind of superficial. This is, this is what a lot of people refer to maybe as legalism or someone who does a really good job of externally putting on a good face and having control of how they are perceived by other people. So they're going to be really good at dealing with sins that are obvious and that stand out. 
And um, usually these are people who grow up in the church and are very accustomed to what church people expect. And so they're really good at kind of managing their appearance. And they're convinced that this whole story is essentially a way to show off their moral superiority to someone else. So if this is you, and all of us do this, so you might do one more than the other, but if you do this, here's how you'll know. Other people's sin will really irritate you. So like other people that you know, or even the world, the sin of the world, you're gonna spend a lot of time obsessing over it and thinking like, oh, that should really be different, that should be better, why aren't they over that yet? Why are they still wrestling with that sin? Why don't they love Jesus enough to just get over it? I don't understand it. They should be more like me. Everyone should be more like me. And so that's kind of a caricature of what will happen internally. So the fruit of this, the result, is that you kind of become unloving. You're aloof. You're cold. You're really proud and other people start to bother you more. So if, if that's you, and you think that your battle with sin or the Christian's battle with sin is fairly superficial, and it's just kind of like a foregone conclusion, and you're like, ah, I've got it over, under control for the most part, like I can go a few days without you know, doing a sin, um, you aren't taking what Paul says here seriously. So I want to encourage you to let go of that way of reading this. Don't be so sure that you are killing sin in the way he's talking about. And then another narrative so is going to be the tragedy. And so in a tragedy, there's a tragic hero. And so something really bad happens to the main figure, and everyone feels empathy towards that main figure. And so you feel bad for them. They're a victim, right? So there's, um, there's somebody who's really easy to like and you feel for, and then tragedy strikes them, and it creates this emotional response in you. So we put ourselves into that victim seat, and sin all of a sudden is a power that's way greater than our ability to manage. And it makes us helpless. And so it's like, eh, I don't want to do that, but I can't help it. And so what what ends up happening is you're kind of distancing yourself from your own sin. It's something that happens to you. It's not something that you are doing and actively choosing. You also are going to be a little bit tempted to play in or bask in the suffering that sin produces. I know that sounds weird, but we do it all the time. It's throwing a pity party, right? It's like when we sin and consequences happen, we care a lot more about the consequences than the actual sin. And so we kind of bask in that, and we want other people to come rescue us. It's, it's the classic damsel in distress. It's waiting for somebody to ride to our rescue. And we Christianize this. We, make, we put church language to it, We'll use language like, oh, I just need to surrender this to Jesus. I need to let go and let God. These are some of the cliches that happen. And so 
if you think that Jesus is going to swoop in and stop you from lusting or stop you from talking about a coworker behind their back or a friend behind their back, or if you think that Jesus is going to swoop in before you lash out in anger and you're kind of waiting, you're like, I don't know, I'm surrendered, so my part's done. That's not how it works. We know that. Jesus doesn't swoop in and come to our rescue, right? So you're not, you're not putting yourself into a proper understanding of what Paul wants you to do. Because yes, on one hand, we do surrender to God. We let go of our desires and embrace his desires for us. But as we do that, it's very active. We actually do things. And so we don't just kind of like sit back and let it happen to us. We are actually engaged in that process. So if that's you, then you are also at odds with how this passage is actually working. And so alternatively, the kind of story that actually best helps us understand these words is a fairy tale. And a fairy tale, um, people were talking to me after the first service that fairy tales we like to think of as like cute and kid stories. But actually, fairy tales are really graphic most of the time. And they depict evil very powerfully. And there's a lot of tension and complexity in how the story unfolds. And so you're not really sure what's going to happen. You can think of some of, the, some of the popular ones. Lord of the Rings is one. Um, the Chronicles of Narnia is a really good one, where there's tension built in the story, and you have this hero that then dies. And so now there's a lot of tension. You don't know how it's going to resolve. And the hero died for, like, the worst, most despicable character. And then the hero comes back to life. This is the Chronicles of Narnia. It's basically a picture of the gospel, right? The hero comes back to life, but he doesn't just say to that despicable person that he died for, like, oh, there you go. Now you can just continue being despicable. No, he actually gives him power to join into the epic struggle against evil. And so this is actually how we should be viewing these words, we should be seeing this as an invitation into, into a complex and epic battle against sin. And so this is, happens to be a fairy tale that's real. <laughs> and so in Christ, we are engaged in a battle of sin. We're putting sin to death because our lives really do depend on it. And so... Walking through these two verses, we're going to see three different things. The first is what I just said. Our battle with sin is real. And we're going to see how are we even in a battle with sin. What makes that happen? What puts us at a, into a battle with sin? The second is we're going to see that our battle with sin is ongoing. So it's continuous. And then third is our battle with sin is to the, to the death so let's start with our battle with sin is real. So in verse 12, Paul kind of is summarizing what has just happened in Romans 8, 1 through 11. And the big idea is that there's no condemnation. The Spirit of God is in you. You belong to God. And he is, has done what you could not do. So there's no condemnation because you are in Christ Jesus. You don't walk according to the flesh. 
you walk according to the Spirit because the Spirit is in you. And God has done what your flesh could not do for your behalf, on your behalf. And then it picks up in verse 12 and says, So then, so as a result of all that, brothers and sisters, we are debtors. That's a weird thing to say after that. And we're debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. And then he just kind of goes on. So he's just kind of developed this spirit and flesh dichotomy. So he means for us to ask the question, who are we debtors to? We are debtors, but not to the flesh. So who are we debtors to? It's the spirit. We are debtors to the spirit. We're going to learn more about what that actually means next week, but he doesn't answer it here. He says, here's what happens when you're not a debtor to the flesh. You don't live according to the flesh. The flesh doesn't have power over you. Your identity has changed. Who you belong to has changed. You don't belong to the flesh anymore. You're not obligated to obey the flesh. Now, the flesh is going to have influence, but you don't have to obey the flesh. It's not your nature anymore to obey the flesh. Your nature belongs to the Spirit. So that's how we are placed in a war with sin. Because if we are pulled out of the ranks of the flesh and sin and the devil, we are then put into the ranks of God and of his children. And we're at odds with the flesh. And so when this happens, um, it can feel like we're actually more under the control of the flesh. Because all of a sudden we have these new desires and we're more aware of how we have been waging war against God. And so it can feel like we're even more controlled by sin, but the reality is that the power has been broken, your eyes have been opened. So now you can see it. And so it's a real battle with sin. Our battle with sin is real. The second element that we learn is that our battle with sin is ongoing. And you see this kind of towards the second half of verse 13. It says this, But if by the Spirit you put to, deed, to, if you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you put to death. Now, help me out a little bit with tense. Is that past, present, or future tense? If you put to death. Take out the if. You put to death. Present, yes. Okay, so it's not future. It's not something that's already done. Well, that's frustrating. Wish I had already done that. And it's not future, so I don't get to put it off. He wants you to put to death the deeds of the body right now. And then imagine that, you know, in 10 years you dust off your Bible and you open back up to Romans 8 and you're reading this verse again. And says, oh, I see, if you put to death the deeds of the body, still present tense. And on your deathbed, when you read this verse, it will still be present tense. This is ongoing. It's happening now, and it will be happening in the future. It's an ongoing battle. So essentially, what we're learning is that our battle with sin is a marathon, it's not something that we sprint through and then finish. 
So when I was a little bit younger, I had a roommate who was running a marathon, or he said he was gonna run a marathon. He was also had a full-time job, was working on like a congressional campaign, and was in grad school, and so I kind of laughed at him. I was like, oh yeah, sure. Um, and then he was like, yeah, will you, will you help me train? And I was like, yeah, man, like if in a few months you're still training, I'll run a training, a training run with you. So I was like, never gonna happen. Well, three months go by, I am not running at all, and he comes to me, hey, let's go run. I'm like, oh no. I didn't know that I was going to be even running part of a training run for a marathon. And this is what happens to us sometimes in our battle with sin. It's like we don't think that this is gonna happen and continue to happen for our, the rest of our lives. And so it gets really discouraging and painful when, and frustrating when we're continuing to battle something and it just seems like we keep doing it. And so, getting back to comedy, tragedy, fairy tale framework, in a comedy, you just trick yourself into thinking, oh, I actually killed it. It's good, I've dealt with it, I'm good. And I'm actually better than this person because they're still working on it. In a tragedy, you're like, I tried, clearly I'm powerless, so I'm just gonna wait for Jesus to come and rescue me. But in this fairy tale framework, we engage in the difficulty of ongoing warfare. And as we do that, what we actually learn is the spirit is in it with us, and certain things will start to happen. And here's a few of them, and I hope that this um, encourages you, and you want, it actually motivates you to do this. Because as you're engaging sin in this ongoing warfare, all of a sudden, very basic, ordinary things about the Christian life come alive. And you actually see what their purpose is. So when you read your Bible, you're engaging in this warfare of killing sin. All of a sudden, the Bible becomes oxygen instead of an obligation. You actually get life from it because you need it. Or as you're praying, your prayer is actually rest and fellowship instead of just whining and complaining. And then, as you come to church and worship, it's actually going to be necessary for you to do that. You're going to see it as something you need instead of just like, oh, it's, it's self-care. This kind of helps me have a good week. So the marathon of our battle with sin, it actually helps make sense of the rest of the Christian life, and it continues to do that. And then finally, the third thing that we see is that our battle with sin is to the death. And John Owen, he's an old theologian from England, he is famous for saying, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And so he, that's an awkward way of putting it again, but he's showing you the imminence, the present tense of this battle. If you take a rest from killing your sin, your sin will be killing you during that rest. So, it's out, to, it's out to kill you. It's out for blood, and it will kill you. So again, in a comedy, our struggle with sin is only superficial. We're only concerned about the outward appearance. It's as if we're just going to cut off the heads of the dandelions so that it looks kind of like grass. 
instead of taking the time to root them out. But when you do that, the seeds of the dandelion spread and more grow. Or if we're viewing our battle with sin as a tragedy, we're going to view ourselves as already dead, unable to engage in any battle, and we're just going to let the weeds grow. And when weeds grow, they grow stronger, more complex, they take more ground, and it becomes much harder to get rid of them. And so in the complexity of life, we must actually kill sin at the root. And it's really frustrating to do this, because how do you know if you've ever gotten the root? It stops growing back, right? And so there's going to be so many times as we walk with Christ throughout our entire lives that we think, oh, I've killed that, and then it grows back. And so as we engage this ongoing warfare, we're going to have grown in us a vigilant humility in our battle with sin. We're going to be vigilant because we're sick of those things growing back. (laughs) And so we're going to learn more about how to kill it. We're going to seek God and his help in doing that. And then we're also going to have a humility worked into us because we realize just how far those roots reach into us. And so as we are battling sin in this way, it's going to be an ongoing battle to the death. Um, and we're also going to develop a really strong hatred for sin. And this is tricky because a lot of times sin will seem good and we actually do want it. But as time goes on, as you continue to fight against it and see the devastation that wreaks in your life, in your body, in the people that you love, and in your relationship with God, you're going to hate it. And Paul picks up on this. He uses very emotional language um, that, isn't re- that doesn't really come through. But it's not just putting to death the deeds of the body, but these are actually disgusting deeds of the body. We are to hate our own sin. And so, if we're viewing our battle with sin in the way of a fairy tale, we're going to get something much better than we can ever imagine. And let me, let me talk a little bit about what that is, because my desire is to motivate us all that we will create a new desire to actually kill sin. I could do like 20 points on how this happens, but um, that's just overwhelming. And it's going to take us the rest of our lives to get there. And I think we need to start first at something more basic, which is just our motivation, our desire to do it. G.K. Chesterton said that fairy tales don't tell children that dragons exist. Children already know that dragons exist. Fairy tales tell children that dragons can be killed. So Paul wants us to know that our sin can be killed. We really can put to death the deeds of the body. But even more wonderfully, that is almost an obvious ending. (laughs) But even more wonderfully, Paul shows us what it means to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. 
when God wants us to put to death sin, he gives his own power for us to do it. He gives us himself, the person of the Holy Spirit, with us, ready to help us, ready to engage with us in a battle against sin. And so when you and the Spirit put to death sin, you are going to have a stronger bond with the Spirit. You're going to know more about what the heart of God is for you. You're going to have a stronger connection with the Spirit. And then you'll also be reaffirmed what Spirit it is that is in you. It's the Spirit of Christ. It is the Spirit of the one who went to death to make the final break of your sin. He's the one who has established you as no longer belonging to sin, but belonging to the Spirit. It's also the Spirit of the Christ who resurrected, who death could not hold, who despite all odds rose from the dead because he was righteous. And it's the Spirit of the Jesus who ascended to be at the Father and right now intercedes with God to help you in your battle against sin. And this spirit, this is where the ending's better than we could ever imagine, gives us eternal fellowship and growing intimacy with God. And he involves us in cosmic warfare, and we're going to see how that plays out as we continue to go through Romans 8. And really, we don't want to separate the rest of this passage, so please come back next week, because we're going to learn next week more about what it means to belong to the Spirit and how that works. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, so much for, for your care for us, for your desire that we would not, that we would not perish, that we would not um, be so content and deceived by our sin that we would, um, that we would be separated from you, Lord. We thank you that it is your desire that all of those who know you and trust your son would be able to participate in killing sin, in having victory, and in continue, continuing to walk according to your spirit. Lord, we thank you so much again that you have spoken this word to us today and that you desire right now for us to, to hear you and to look at our lives and to see where we've given up or maybe where we have become proud and arrogant or um, where we think the battle is over and it's not. Lord, I ask that you would help us see so that we can experience um, what it's like to live life in Christ. I pray all of those things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to continue in worship from our time of offering.